It's Monday, September 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Peace talks between the Taliban and the U.S. have stalled for now, after a car bombing last week that killed an American soldier. President Trump also revealed that he had even invited members of the Taliban and Afghan leadership to Camp David to continue negotiations. This drew criticism from many about whether it was an appropriate venue to invite Taliban leadership. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this, another Republican running against Trump, and more protests in Hong Kong. Next, a story from the biohacker community. There's a new DIY implant called PegLeg that lets you stream movies and music from inside your leg. PegLeg can be accessed by any Wi-Fi-enabled device to share and upload files, stream movies and music, and even act as a server for an anonymous chat room. The big question, why would anyone ever want to do this? Daniel Oberhaus, writer at Wired, joins us for what PegLeg is all about and also details his experience with biohacking. He has a chip implanted in his hand. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We finally reached a point where we were close. Uh, We'd made real progress, and then the Taliban uh, failed to live up to a series of commitments that they had made. And when that happened, President Trump said, I'm not going to take that deal. I'm not going to work with someone that can't deliver on their commitments. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Last week, we had notification that the U.S. government had reached agreement in principle with the Taliban to end the fighting there. We were going to take over 5,000 troops out in just about 135 days. It seemed like things were progressing with a little bit of hesitation. And then over the weekend, we realized that all the talks had broken down. The president had even agreed to host members of the Taliban and the Afghan government at Camp David to continue these peace negotiations. And everything just broke down. What do we know about that, Ginger? We knew for a little while now that there were talks taking place in Afghanistan and that President Trump wanted to see a reduction in the number of U.S. troops that are currently there. This is something he campaigned on that he's talked about frequently, trying to bring down American involvement in Afghanistan. We also knew that his advisors were warning him that pulling out or scaling back troops in Afghanistan came with a risk that the area could become destabilized. We've seen this happen before. But President Trump was very eager to get some type of deal in the, in the country that would be a peace deal that he thought would get American troops out. Those talks had been going on. There had been rumblings in the last few days coming out of Afghanistan, as well as Washington, that those talks were falling apart. It seems that that is the case, especially after this tweet from President Trump on Saturday, where he publicly announced that, as you said, had agreed to sort of host the Taliban and the Afghanistan government here in the U.S. to try to finalize these talks, that after an attack that they believe was levied by the Taliban, that they decided to cancel that meeting. Yeah, they, they said that they were continuing these attacks. They were trying to gain leverage, but they killed a U.S. soldier in one of these attacks. And, and uh, obviously for the president to keep peace negotiations going at that point is very difficult. I know that a lot of the conversation around this, once the president said that he was planning on hosting Taliban leaders and Afghan leaders at Camp David, the conversation swirled around whether that was an appropriate venue or not. That's right. There were parallels to past peace talks between the Israelis and the Palestinians that had been held at Camp David, as well as the fact that 
you'd have Taliban leaders coming into the United States, going to a presidential retreat, holding meetings, basically on the anniversary of 9-11. And there was a lot of criticism of the president that the timing and the optics of it would look very bad for the United States, given the anniversary of those horrific attacks. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was on a lot of the Sunday talk shows talking about this and was even asked himself as a veteran yourself, uh, you know, do you think this is appropriate? And, you know, he obviously he's supporting the president. So he said he supports these peace talks, but really kind of skirted around the issue whether Camp David was an appropriate place to do this. You know, we can look at President Trump, who campaigned as a guy who would not be worried about political correctness. But he's repeatedly demonstrated that in the search of a deal and trying to come up with some type of an agreement on an international scale, something that he views as very much bolstering his image and sort of delivering on what he promised, that he's willing to look past a good deal of the optics and the type of things like this criticism that the Taliban shouldn't be at Camp David, like his criticism that he shouldn't have met with Kim Jong-un in the way that he did. He's just not phased by that. Let's take a quick look into 2020. We have another contender on the Republican side, Mark Sanford. He's the former South Carolina governor and congressman. He decided to launch a long shot bid <laughs> to beat the president. I think we have three people running against the president right now. And uh, the way he said it, you know, he says, I think we need to have a conversation on what it means to be a Republican. Once again, it's this fight for what it means to be a Republican, the future of the party. That's right. Mark Sanford has been a pretty vocal critic of the president since before he got elected. He says the president isn't a conservative, that he doesn't represent Republicans, that he's not engaged in being a fiscal conservative, which are points that were really important to Sanford. And so he's going to run against him now. Mark Sanford's no longer a member of Congress because after he was so critical of the president, Trump backed a primary challenger to him during the midterm elections. And Sanford was defeated in a district where he was quite popular because he had crossed Trump. So he's already learned firsthand that uh, sort of running against Trump, particularly in very uh, conservative circles or in Republican circles, is, is not easy and he's unlikely to win. And he acknowledged as much that he doesn't think he's going to win, but that it's instead sort of taking a principled stand. The last uh, thing I wanted to talk about There's been a lot of protests happening in Hong Kong for weeks now. And there was another one this past week in front of the U.S. consulate there. And protesters were asking for the president to help liberate Hong Kong from China. The protesters in Hong Kong are protesting in favor of democracy. And throughout history, the United States has been viewed as sort of the beacon of democracy and an ally of movements that would like to protect or instill democracy in other countries. And so the hope was that the president would see them as a cause worthy of American support. We have seen a little bit of that coming from the United States government. The U.S. government's engaged in trade talks with China, although it's not exactly clear all the time where those stand since they have become kind of a stalemate. And we do know that American negotiators have said that China, as a part of the deal, should agree to treat the protesters in Hong Kong humanely, although they have not gone so far as to make the kind of requests that the Hong Kong protesters would like, which is that Hong Kong remain completely independent and not be part of the Chinese judicial system. President Trump has not appeared willing to take such a strong stance against the Chinese. He is very concerned about getting a trade deal with China. And we've seen this escalating trade war. 
And we also know that the president hasn't been persuaded in the past to get behind movements in other countries that oppose their leadership. He very much supports leaders. And this is sort of while the American ideals of democracy, um, uprisings of the public are not things that the president has been particularly keen on backing. Yeah. And for now, I mean, you just see pictures coming from protests. They're walking out there with American flags, protesting in front of the U.S. consulate. Uh, they are some uh, pretty striking images. So yeah, we'll, we'll continue to see how that develops. Because that, that, these protests have been going on for quite some time now. No end in sight. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So it's like a Wi-Fi hotspot in that way. Whatever you have, you just look for Wi-Fi networks and peg leg will come up and you click on it and then the splash screen comes But it's up. not connected to the regular internet, right? Right. When we have a local area network, then all of us in this room can connect to it and we can talk, but nobody's going to be able to surveil that unless they're here. Joining us now is Daniel Oberhaus, writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thank you for having me. We're going to be talking about biohackers and a do-it-yourself implant called Peg Leg that turns your cell, your leg really <laughs> into a local wireless network that anyone in the same room can access. You can upload files. You can download files from it. You guys made a video for Wired, and in the article you reference Johnny Mnemonic. It's kind of this same principle almost. You can throw files on there, transport it across <laughs> state lines if you need to. You can do whatever you want with it. But this is all coming from a guy named Michael Lawfer. Tell us a little bit about Peg Leg and what this is all about. So I've known Michael Lawfer for a few years. He's probably best known in the biohacking community as the public face of Four Thieves Vinegar Collective. And they're trying to make open source medicine so anyone can download and brew their own life-saving drugs. So he comes from a pretty controversial space. But with this new project, he wanted to do something that was more um, biohacking in the you know really sci-fi sense of it so implanting something in your leg that augments human functionality so the origins of this was michael and a bunch of other biohackers get together every year for a meetup called grind fest out in the california desert and they spend the weekend working on new implants hacking stuff together and michael had a device called a pirate box which creates a local mesh network that anyone can connect to and share files it's basically just a little Wi-Fi router that you'd have in your house. So they stripped that down to just its bare essentials. They added a way to wirelessly charge it, kind of like you charge a cell phone by putting it on a pad. They dipped it in some bio-friendly resin. And then within 48 hours of coming up with this idea, they had a implantable device and a person named Left, that's her alias, she implanted it in her arm and became the first person to have a wireless network device in their body. Wow. Now, okay, so you said it's kind of like a router. It has space for storage. I think he is, the one that they made is has like a terabyte in it or something. How big is this thing? So the first generation, I would say it's about the size of a pack of cigarettes, but like a little bit of a slimmer profile. So it was really big as far as implants go. Most people who get them, myself included, I actually have a chip in my hand and they're not much bigger than a grain of rice. So these things are large. The one that Lawfer got in his leg is a bit smaller. It's about the size of a pack of gum and, you know, maybe three inches by, you know, an inch or so thick. 
but you know, a pretty substantial procedure to, you know, open up your leg and stick something that large in it, especially when it's all done out of someone's garage. And the big question is, what is the whole purpose of this? Obviously, it's to store files, transport files, download files, share files, that whole thing. But why? Why would you do it? I think it really depends on who you ask. There's been three people who've gotten this device in their bodies. I spoke with each of them and they each had a different answer. On the one hand, there are the people who enjoy biohacking just as a form of uh, personal expression. So it's similar to a functional tattoo or a piercing to them, which is something cool to have. Michael Lawfer is a lot more politically motivated. He sees it as a way to avoid surveillance, to allow free sharing, and basically to undermine the centralized structure of the normal internet by creating mesh networks that are literally in your body. So it spans the spectrum from this is just something that's really cool to this is something that will help me subvert the state. <laughs> wow. And uh, <laughs> it's so crazy. Okay. So describe how this works because you actually got a chance to connect to it and use it and download something off of it. Yeah, it's pretty simple. So Michael came into our office. He held up a wireless battery that you might use to charge your phone or anything else that can be charged wirelessly. And he just puts it on his leg or in his pant pocket. And then the device automatically powers on. It creates a local Wi-Fi hotspot, basically. So I use my phone and I connected to the device's network. And it serves a really simple interface, really text-heavy kind of reminds me of the way the internet used to be in like the early 90s. But there's a place where you can upload and download files. So anyone who connects to it can upload whatever they want to his leg. And they can also download whatever is stored on there. There's no security or anything. There's like a little chat room that you can chat with anyone else who's connected to his leg. You can do an anonymous chat. There's a forum. So it's a really simple, easy to use interface. And anyone who is in the area can connect to it. And that leads to a few legal questions, too, because anybody could connect to it as long as you're in close proximity. Anybody can upload anything and download anything from it. But who's to say, you know, somebody uploads something that shouldn't be there, something illegal, whatever the case may be. The question then becomes who's responsible for it, who's held liable for it. This is something where, like many technologies, the law really hasn't caught up. When I was working on this piece about this implant, I was trying to find a lawyer who could comment on the kind of legal precedent here. And everyone from the Electronic Frontier Foundation to the ACLU was basically just like, no comment. Really nothing to say here because no one's had to explore this issue. But I think, you know, you raise a valid point. You know, what if someone uploads a sensitive classified government document or even worse, something like child porn is the person who has this stuff in their leg, are they responsible for it? Or is it going to be treated like a normal website where the provider isn't necessarily held liable for the things that third parties upload? Now, I have a question a little bit more about biohacking and implanting devices in one's body. You can't just take this thing. You said, was, at least in, uh, in Michael's case, it was about the size of a pack of gum. You can't really just take this to your local doctor and say, hey, can you open me up and implant this thing? Where do you go? How did he get this implanted? Michael got his implanted by a man named Cassix, who uh, has his own little DIY operating room that he runs out of his garage. So he actually has implanted dozens of devices by himself. So if you have the stomach for it, you know, there's lots of places online that explain how to do this. But everyone makes sure to kind of warn anyone who's interested that this is really dangerous and there's no guarantees that this can go wrong. So the person who did Michael's implant, he's really experienced, has gained a lot of trust in the community for doing this for years. 
as far as I know, totally successfully, there hasn't really been any serious mishaps, but the danger's already there. You know, you're doing things that haven't really been tested outside of a handful of people messing around with technology. So there's not really any of the safety there. So I think if you wanted to get it done, you'd have to find someone who's really comfortable with a scalpel and was willing to (laughs) cut open your body for you. (laughs) I mean, the procedure uh, from reading through this, the procedure took about a half hour and Michael said that he passed out at one point and maybe threw up also. Yeah, he said he passed out a little bit and threw up. I actually saw all the videos that they took while they were doing this, wow. and it's just a body horror. It's really <laughs> disgusting, but you know, if you have the stomach for it. <laughs> wow. Now, I have a question for you. You mentioned that you uh, have a chip implanted in yourself. What is the purpose of that? How did that whole thing happen? So that I got a couple of years ago when I was at DEF CON, which is a big hacker conference in Las Vegas that happens every year. And they have a village where biohackers meet up and kind of talk shop. And every year they do implants. So at the behest of a friend of mine who is really into the scene, I got dragged along. And for 50 bucks, they would put a NFC, a near field communication chip in my hand. So I said, why not? And so now I have this little tiny chip in between my forefinger and thumb. It can connect to any device that has an NFC reader. So most modern cell phones, it doesn't store a whole lot of data. But if you hold my, like, for instance, if you were to put your phone up to my hand, it would load my contact information into your phone automatically. Yeah, but you can program it to open doors, that sort of thing. That's pretty crazy right there. (laughs) So (laughs) what was that implant procedure like? You said it was 50 bucks. I mean, (laughs) you got to be be comfortable with somebody doing it too. But how, how does that work? So, I mean, it was just, you know, there was a room in the back of the hotel and there was a guy there with a huge needle. I mean, I I have, I've gotten several piercings throughout my life and tattoos. So that part didn't bother me so much, but I'd never seen a needle that large that wasn't drawing blood. And they just put the the little chip, it looks kind of like a grain of rice inside the needle. And then they poke it in and you can kind of watch it go in your hand, which is a really weird feeling, but really painless, honestly. So (laughs) And so now you have this, uh, you know, you mentioned a couple of the capabilities that it has. How often do you use it? Do you find it useful? I rarely use it for anything useful. It's more of just a fun party trick and kind of a way to support biohacking as a culture. I really like the things that these people are doing and kind of the spirit behind it. Even if I don't want to get, say, one of these peg leg devices in my leg just yet, I'm really glad there's people out there doing it. So it's just kind of a way to, to broach the topic with people and kind of demystify it. And people always have the exact same kind of shocked reaction when you <laughs> tell them you got <laughs> right. chipped. So. Uh, right. <laughs> and right now the biohacking community is kind of like a subculture, but do you see this really expanding more and more? Uh, obviously, we see a lot of sci-fi movies. Uh, you know, we mentioned Johnny Mnemonic earlier. Uh, you know, it, it just seems like as technology advances, you might see more and more of this. You know, it's hard to say. I think, for instance, like with this chip, there's companies that are trying to let their employees do this. And I think a lot of people are resistant to biohacking when there's a entity kind of forcing it upon people or when it's used in like a controlling manner like that. I'm skeptical that biohacking will ever become as common as piercings or tattoos. But I think, you know, if you would have asked someone a hundred years ago, do you think tattoos will ever be common? They're like, no, that's for sailors and low life. So, you know, maybe another hundred years, everyone will be walking around and they will have internet powered by their leg. Daniel Oberhaus, writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.